0: Let's pray together. Our Father, as we bow before you this morning. We do know indeed that out of the depths of hearts that have been made new by the power of your spirit, we worship you and proclaim the excellence of your praise. We desire to magnify your name and to rejoice before you this day in the fullness of your spirit and in the blessing that is ours in Christ. We know that if you should mark iniquities in our lives, even this day that not one of us could stand. We thank you that there is truly forgiveness with you through the perfectly, eternally sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to you today through him who's been made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. In Christ alone we stand today clothed with his perfectly impeccable righteousness, offering unto you the sacrifice of our praise. In Christ we stand today, standing in his victory, thanking you that by his resurrection... He's given us a living hope, thanking you that in Christ we have a lasting treasure, one that is incorruptible and undefiled and that will not spoil or pass away or fade with the passage of time. We thank you that in Christ we live and move and have our very being. And Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit more and more of his work might be applied to our lives, that we might increasingly bear his image and his likeness. We pray that in the power of your spirit, we might bear a bold and yet graciously wise and winsome witness to the truth and beauty and power and glory of the gospel. Toward that end, we pray for our pastor today, Dr. Young in India, and ask that you would continue to sustain him and our friend and brother Jim Umloff daily, both physically and spiritually, that these dear brothers would be empowered by your spirit to teach teach to preach, to apply the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it would find fertile soil in the hearts of Indian pastors and in a country that's been marked by incredible darkness and deception. We pray that you would be pleased, O God, to shine the light of the gospel and to call many to a saving knowledge of Christ. Might you pull down the strongholds of darkness and cause there to be a revival and reformation all to the praise of the glory of your great name. In the varied circumstances of our lives today, we stand before you and we pray that the peace that surpasses all understanding would fill us. We pray that you would work all things to our good and your glory. We pray that uh, whatever the circumstances of our lives may be today, that they might deepen in us a greater appreciation for your sufficiency, for your wisdom, your power, your holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Accept our praise today, Father, for we offer it in Christ. We also offer our tithes and gifts to you now, and we ask that you would bless them. We recognize that you've abundantly supplied all that we have, and so we give freely and joyfully today and pray that you would grant us grace and wisdom to live more simply, to give more sacrificially to the expansion of your kingdom. For this we long and for this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. For those of you who may have come in a little bit late this morning, our speaker today is Professor Jerem Bars. He's been the facilitator and leader of the Men's Retreat Weekend, talking about evangelism in the workplace. He is uh, the professor of Christian studies at uh, Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, Served a number of years, 18 years, at LaBrie Fellowship under the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, where he also served as a pastor. He's a lecturer and author and so on. He is filling the pulpit today um, in Dr. Young's absence. However, we have, I think, about a minute and a half, something like that, video greeting. Oh, the wonders of technology! Uh, all the way from India, our pastor is spying on us this morning, and um, and wants to greet us warmly. Richard, would you show us that? And immediately following this, our speaker will come.
1: Good morning. I'm sorry I'm not him, you obviously uh, would uh, like to have him here, but uh, could you please turn to Luke chapter 15 for our reading from God's Word. It's been a great pleasure to be here with you this weekend. Uh, Ladies, you have a wonderful group of men, I have to say. It's just been, uh, I hope you appreciate how special they are. I hope to hear something when I said that. uh, (laughs) Before I read this passage, just a a few words of introduction. I'm going to read the whole chapter here, these three parables that we see in chapter 15, and its setting is just fascinating. because Jesus, on this occasion, is speaking to a very mixed group of people. The text tells us at the beginning that Jesus has been there, uh, probably eating and drinking with a group of sinners and tax collectors. Uh, the tax collectors were just about as popular as sympathizers with Saddam Hussein. You know, because They worked for the Romans and they were mostly dishonest and corrupt. Uh, the sinners, you just put anybody in that category who uh, you really don't like, who you despise. And that will, uh, that will fit uh, quite nicely. But Jesus is with these people. He's been eating and drinking with them, having fellowship with them, uh, close fellowship. And then there's another group of people there as well who have been watching this and are very upset by it. And that is the Pharisees and The scribes, the teachers of the law. If we want to think about them, we might say the Pharisees are basically the moral conservatives of the day. The people who stand up for God's values in their society, for his commandments. And the teachers of the law are seminary teachers and pastors and Bible teachers in Sunday school classes and people who teach God's word to others. And there are these two groups of people. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the the Bible scholars and uh, the, the zealous people to obey God's commandments are very upset because Jesus has been eating and drinking with these tax collectors and sinners. If he had just preached to them, they wouldn't have minded very much, but Jesus had fellowship with them and so they're very upset. Now, on this occasion, Jesus tells these three parables and all three of them, address both of these groups of people. And as I read them to you and then preach about them, I want you to think where you stand. Are you the good? Are you the bad? Are you the ugly? I love Clint Eastwood movies, so uh, that's, uh, you'll have to excuse the title, but it's actually quite appropriate, as you'll see as we go along. But uh, who are we? How do we hear these Parables. Now, as we listen to parables, parables work sometimes on four different levels. First of all, at the most basic level, obviously, the parable is just a story. A story which is intended by Jesus to capture the imagination and to touch the heart. And as you hear these stories, you want to think about them that way. This is a story which we're going to remember, and which is going to stick in our minds. Secondly, sometimes the parables teach us how God desires that we treat each other. They teach us how he wants us to live. So there's a sort of ethical level. Thirdly, the parables are often about the kingdom of God. And you'll know that, you remember that some of the parables start that way. The kingdom of God is like this. Well, these parables don't start that way, but they certainly teach us, you'll see, about the kingdom of God, what God's kingdom is like. And at the fourth level, sometimes the parables teach us about Jesus. They picture what he's like and what his love is like, who he is. So as I read these, this passage to us, I'm going to read the whole passage. Let's listen to this very carefully and see where we stand. Obviously, the the, the hero of each of these stories is the good. Then there's the bad, and then there's the ugly. Where do we stand as we hear these? So let's hear God's word. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country And kissed him and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field. Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, open your word to us, we pray, and open our hearts to you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, how do we hear these three parables? We'll begin with the first one, the parable of the shepherd and the lost sheep. Jesus tells here a very simple story. A story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. We shouldn't imagine them being in a fenced-in field somewhere. Uh, That's not how they kept them. They were out in the open country, as the parable tells us. Many parts of the world still have their sheep and cattle that way. And so, of course, they need somebody watching them. So they're out in the open country safely grazing in the fields and one of them wanders away and so the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes off to find the lost sheep. And when he finds it, it's obviously damaged, so he puts it up on his shoulders and he brings it back. And he is so delighted to have found this lost sheep that when he gets back, he calls his friends and neighbors and they have a great party to celebrate. And Jesus says, as he talks about this, that this is exactly what happens in heaven. There's a great party in heaven with God and the angels and everybody there celebrating every time there is a sinner who comes to repentance. It's a very simple story. It's a very powerful story. It's a story that has inspired untold paintings and other stories and plays and full-length novels and music. This is a story that's captured the imagination of the people of God all down through the generations since Jesus told this. From the very earliest church, there are engravings and pictures and stories about this parable right up until the present time. And some of you probably have pictures in your home. So this is certainly a story that's captured the imagination of the people of God at that first level. And of course, it's a story that teaches us how we're to treat one another. The kind of attitude we are to have to those who are lost, to those who are caught in sin, to those whose lives are falling apart in all sorts of ways. You know, God teaches us in this parable, Jesus teaches us that we ought to be concerned for them and we ought to be those who are committed to finding them and rejoicing when they have found. And of course, the parable tells us about the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is a kingdom which is delighted when sinners come to repentance. And there's a great big party. You know, a huge party. One of my colleagues at Covenant was saying on our day of prayer last semester, he said, you know, Covenant Seminary ought to be known as the biggest party school in the nation. Because we have something to celebrate around as God's people. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of celebration. And fourthly, of course, the whole church throughout its history has seen Jesus in this story. This is a story about Jesus. How Jesus comes to find those who are lost and brings them back. Now, it's fascinating how this story has been represented in paintings. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but what I'm going to say now, but, but very often in the recent past, this parable is presented by a picture of a rather beautiful young man with long flowing brown hair, you know, holding a little lamb in his arms. Now, some of you probably have a painting like this, so please don't be offended by what I'm going to say. But in the early church, that's not how this parable was represented, In the paintings and engravings from the very early centuries and in commentaries about this parable, they saw it very differently. The the shepherd in those early paintings and engravings is presented as a working man. And he's carrying a full-grown sheep over his shoulders, just like the parable says. And he is bent down like this with this great big heavy sheep that's injured. And he is scratched and torn and bruised and weary because of going to find this lost sheep and to carry it back home. Now, the early church saw the cross in this parable, the cost to Jesus of his coming to find those who are lost. Now, again, I didn't mean to offend anybody by telling you that. Those pictures are fine, but that's really not what this parable is about. There are other passages of scripture which tell us about Jesus holding the lambs in his arms. But, but this is about the shepherd going to find this sheep at great cost to himself and then bringing it back home rejoicing on his shoulders. That's the first story. How do we hear this story? Now you can think of the people who are listening to Jesus. You can be very sure that the sinners and tax collectors heard this very gladly. You know, because they, they came to Jesus so gladly. They welcomed him. They delighted in his company. They sat and ate with him because he was the first Bible teacher they'd ever met who liked to be with sinners. Who didn't exclude them. Who didn't separate himself from them. Who didn't think that holiness and righteousness meant keeping apart from people whose lives were messed up. Jesus tells us, in fact, he came into the world for exactly the opposite reason. To show mercy to those who were in need, whose lives were lost and broken and trapped in sin. So the sinners are going to hear this very gladly. Now, what about the Pharisees and the scribes? How are they going to hear it? Well, they're not going to like it very much. Because their idea of the kingdom of God is not about rescuing sinners and messed up people. Their idea of righteousness is keeping themselves completely separate. That's why they're muttering and grumbling. And that's, of course, why Jesus tells this story, because they're muttering and grumbling, because they don't begin to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, at the very end of the parable, there's a kind of sop to lull them into a sense of false security, you might say, where Jesus talks about the 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. So they're going to hear this first parable and they're going to think at the end, well, that's us. We're people who don't need to repent, not like these wretched sinners over here. So Jesus has kind of hooked them uh, with the ending of his parable there. Now that brings us to the second one. Now again, it's a very simple story. This one is about a woman who loses a coin. Now the coin is a lot of money. It's worth a day's wages. So whether your wages are $50 a day or $1,000 a day people with all sorts of wages, I'm sure, in this congregation. You know, it's a lot of money. It's a substantial amount of money. Now, don't imagine, ladies, your own homes here. Otherwise, you won't be able to picture this story at all. You know, I can't imagine any of you losing a day's wages on the floor and not being able to find it. But the reason for this is, of course, in those days, they didn't have windows, glass windows. They just had to have tiny little holes... For a little bit of light to come in, but not too much wind. The word window actually means a wind eye. The eye the wind comes through. So they were tiny windows and they had stone houses. Oh, and so it's very dark inside there and the floor wouldn't be like your nice smooth floors. The floor would be, be pieces of stone with cracks in between them. And so you know, when she loses this substantial amount of money, she has to Light a lamp and she has to sweep out the whole house to try to find it. It's a big task. It takes her time and energy. And when she finds it, she's so delighted. You know, she has a party for her friends. And a very simple story. And again, of course, Jesus is telling a story to capture our imagination. He's telling a story which teaches us about how to treat each other. How to care for those who are lost. He's telling us about the kingdom of God, the nature of God's kingdom, as a kingdom that searches for the lost and that rejoices when they're found. And again, he's telling us about himself. The woman here is a picture of Christ's love for us, how he comes to find those who are lost. Now, how do the people listening hear this story? Again, the sinners and the tax collectors are going to hear it with great gladness. It's going to be a great comfort to them and especially the women will be very encouraged because no teacher of God's word ever in their experience will have used a woman to picture the love of God. So it's a a dignifying story for the women who are listening very encouraged by it. And Jesus is clearly intentionally including them. In this story. What about the Pharisees and the scribes? They're not going to like this story one little bit. There is nothing in this story to comfort them in any kind of way. And they're going to be very offended by Jesus using a woman to picture the love of God. There wasn't any room in their theology for that. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying God is a woman or a female or something like that. That's not my point. But just as it's appropriate to use this picture of a shepherd to picture God or a father longing for his lost son, so it's perfectly appropriate to picture the love of a mother, of a woman to picture God's love for us. Every mother in this room, every day, is picturing to your children, the kindness and the love and the commitment and the care of God to your children. Of course you are. But the Pharisees and scribes wouldn't have liked this one little bit. There's nothing to comfort them at all in this second parable. That brings us to the third one. And of course this is the main story here. This is the long story. This is where Jesus, now he's got his both groups of people completely captured, captivated by what he's saying. You know, Now they're going to listen and he is going to really lay it down for all of them in the most wonderful way. Now again, to picture this story, we need to think about it a little differently than it's certainly been represented in the children's Bible books that I read to my sons years ago. You know, because in those storybooks... Their house was pictured as if it was a house up on a hill far away from everybody else. A great big wealthy house by itself out in the country. Well, nobody lived that way in the first century. It was dangerous. We should picture a house which is on either one side of a village street, a narrow village street, because in rural towns, people lived very close together to protect themselves from marauders and bands of thieves who could come and attack them. They didn't live out in the country somewhere. So we should picture here a small community where everybody knows everybody else's secrets. I grew up in a village like that in the south of England. But nobody had any secrets of anybody else. You couldn't because we all lived close enough together. There weren't secrets. Everybody knew. That's the kind of situation we should Imagine. Now, again, this is a, a wonderful story. Probably one of the most famous stories in the whole world. The paintings, it's inspired. There's a wonderful painting of Rembrandt, for example, on this story, The Return of the Prodigal. Many paintings, music, full-length books, all sorts of things that have come from this story. Let's think about the story. This it's a story which is full of surprises. At the very beginning... The younger son says says to his father, Dad, I want my inheritance right now. Now, everybody listening to Jesus will have heard this as an unthinkable request, a shocking request, because the son is basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I can't wait till you're dead to get it, so give it to me now. I want what's coming to me. That's how everybody would have heard this. It would still be that way in most societies in the world today. For a son to demand his inheritance while his father still alive. And people will be amazed by what Jesus says next, because they'll be expecting Jesus to say, and so the father disinherited his son and drove him away. But they're amazed by what Jesus says, because he says, so the father gave his son his inheritance. He divided up his property between his sons. Now the son has done something really shameful so he has to leave you know he won't be popular in that community and so he leaves and he goes far away to another country where nobody will know what he's done the scandalous thing that he's done and when he gets there he goes through the money very rapidly we don't told exactly what he did but uh, but we can imagine it he just spends it very fast and then, of course, he ends up with absolutely nothing. And there's a famine in the country. And again, this is a story that is being told to Jewish people. You know, Jews don't eat pork. And here this man, he gets so low, he's so completely humiliated, he has to care for pigs. One cannot imagine anything lower for a Jewish person. And he's so hungry, he, I mean, it's not just he'd be glad to eat pork, he'd be glad to eat pig food. He could not get any lower, and so in that situation where he's so low, he can't get any lower at all, he finally comes to his senses, and he thinks about home, and he thinks about even how the servants that his father hires have plenty to eat and are well-treated, because he has a good father, a gracious, kind, and generous father. He's a good employer as well. And so he says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Demanding his inheritance early, spending it all. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired servants. And he he hopes that 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 at least may happen. Now, we come to the next big surprise in the story. What everybody listening to Jesus will expect to hear at this point is that when he comes back, he gets banished. Jewish communities had the time actually had a ceremony to banish somebody from the community and so did families. Even today, Jewish families and Muslim families, if a son behaves like this will actually cut their picture out of the family portraits. You just see a blank there. When a son behaves this way, you know, he's dead to the family. I have a couple of friends like this, Jewish friends who became Christians, and their families have cut them out. They no longer exist in the family pictures. You know, they're not part of the family anymore. They're dead. They are lost. So people expect... You know, some kind of response like this, and that comes to the biggest of all surprise in the story. You know, the father is longing for his son to return, and so when he sees him a long way off, you know, he runs to meet him. You know, older men in that culture didn't run; he has to pull up his robes and wrap them round his waist and. He's humiliating himself publicly and running down through the village and off to find his son to get there before anybody else is going to drive him away. And he gets there, and the servants come running after because they get there too. And you know, the son tries to get his words out of sorrow and repentance, and he doesn't get them all out. You know, his father just interrupts him, and he says, "You know, he falls on him and embraces him and kisses him, and he's so delighted to see him." It must have been completely overwhelming to the son and to everybody watching and to everybody listening. And then he says to the servants, bring the best robe and put him on. him. he's going to be an honored member of this family again. You know, bring shoes for his feet. I mean, this guy's destitute. He doesn't even wear shoes. Bring, bring the ring, the signet ring, which he'll be able to stamp on documents saying he's a full member of this family again. And kill the fattened calf, let's have a huge party to celebrate. But my son who was dead is alive again, the one who was lost his found. And so they have a great big party, it's a huge party. It takes over a hundred people to eat a fattened calf and obviously the whole village is invited and they've got the musicians as well playing and singing there so they're having a fantastic time. And then the elder son comes. And he hears all the noise of the music and the dancing and the singing and everything and the celebrating. And he says, You won't go in. He asks one of the servants, What's going on here? And the servant tells him, You your brother has come back. And your father's killed the fattened calf and is celebrating. And the eldest son won't go in, he's just furious. And then, this is the next surprise in the story. The father comes out and begs his son, he entreats his son, he pleads with his eldest son to come in. And the eldest son is just furious. And he just says, You're, he doesn't say, my brother. He says, your son who has squandered our wealth on prostitutes and you welcome him back? What about me? I've served you faithfully my whole life. I've been a good son. I'm the good son. And you've never given me anything. You're not even a little kid, a young goat, to celebrate with my friends. Now, you should notice that what the elder son says is just complete lies, as well as being thoroughly self-righteous and mean-spirited. We're told at the very beginning of the story that the father had divided his inheritance between the two sons. He's had everything. His father has been just as generous to him as he has been to this younger son. But he's filled with self-righteousness and mean-spiritedness. He's the ugly one. But the father pleads with him again and says, We have to celebrate your brother, your brother, was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Of course, we had to celebrate. Now, the story ends there. We never hear whether the elder brother comes into the party to celebrate. Whether he stays on the outside, refusing to come in. Jesus just stops it right there. Now, how do we hear this story today? Well, the story, of course, tells us about the incredible generosity of God. He has given all of us so many good gifts. And like both of these sons, we often take them for granted. Often we're like the eldest son who feels we deserve it. How many of us, I bet every one of us in this room, has sometimes said to God in our prayers, God, why don't you love me more? Why don't you give me more? Why don't you care for me more? You know, my life is too difficult. As soon as anything becomes difficult, we start complaining to God. Just exactly like this elder brother. You know, how, how do we look at other people? Especially people who've lived lives of, of great sinfulness. You know, do, we, do we secretly wish that they didn't come along? We think, well, God really ought to just judge them and how do we treat them ourselves? Are we like Jesus, who delighted to be with sinners of every kind? Am I a person whose sinners welcome gladly, who like to be with? Do I love to eat and drink and sit down and have close fellowship with people whose lives are completely messed up? Or am I worried what other people might think about it? In so many ways, we're all like this elder brother, lacking in kindness and generosity and the grace of God. And all of us, in other ways, are like this younger brother, who just take God's gifts and we don't say thank you and we go off and just spend them without a thought, without any real gratitude in our hearts. And think how incredibly gracious God is. Now here's the father. When the son comes back, he doesn't even say to him, where's the money? He doesn't say to him, you're going to spend six months proving that you can work hard and you're fit to be a member of the family again. He just embraces him and welcomes him in without a single word of rebuke. And that's exactly how God treats us all. This incredible kindness and generosity and grace every day of our lives and mercy. And what about our lives? Are our lives full of celebration? They should be. Your home ought to be the biggest party home in the neighborhood. Because you know the gospel. You know how kind God has been. We look forward one day to a great big celebration in the kingdom of God where we're going to sit at a big banqueting table with Jesus Christ and he is going to serve us at that table. We're going to celebrate in his kingdom. And our lives now are supposed to be a picture of that. You know, at Christmas and at Easter and at Thanksgiving and at birthdays. Just like the people of God in the Old Testament. You know, that we have celebrations. We celebrate the love of God, the kindness of God, the generosity of God, the mercy of God. And we look forward to that great party in the kingdom to come. And we should make sure, just as each of these three parables tells us, that when we celebrate, we invite those whose lives are messed up and broken and hurting to come and join the party with us. Because that's the nature of God's kingdom. That is what Christ came to do. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. You have been so generous to us like the Father in this story. And you have come to find us when we are lost and brought us back to yourself and you rejoice over us. And Father, we pray that you will teach us to delight in your love and mercy and generous spirit. And that we may treat others this way too. Father, make our hearts like the heart of this loving Father. Like this woman who lost her coin. Like this shepherd who lost his sheep. Father, teach us the nature of your kingdom. And make our hearts those who mirror something of your love we ask. For Jesus' sake. Amen.